Section 23 of the Roosevelt Rondon Scientific Expedition and the Telegraph Line Commission. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Roosevelt Rondon Scientific Expedition and the Telegraph Line Commission by Cândido Rondon. Translated by R. G. Wrighty and Edwin Murray. Third Lecture, Part 10. The reconnaissance of the river Sangue was effected by Lieutenant Vicente de Paula Vasconcelos, assisted by Dr. Serapion. For this purpose, an exploring expedition was formed, which left on the 10th of May of the current year, from the point where the telegraph line crossed that river, descended it, embarked in two canoes as far as its mouth, in the Juruena, where he arrived on the last day of the following month. The total course run in these 71 days' traveling consisted of 425,400 meters, as set out by the topographical survey obtained with the assistance of a telemeter. By these figures one can see that the result of navigation did not attain per day an average of 9 kilometers, and this figure is, by itself, sufficiently eloquent to dispense us of here enumerating the series of obstacles which had to be overcome by Lieutenant Vasconcelos, amongst which are a number of rapids and two important falls beyond the inevitable accidents of shipwreck and loss of craft. The measurements gave for the discharge of the river studied, at the point of embarkation, a volume of 118 cubic meters, and at its mouth more than 360. With regard to the mouths of the two principal affluents, Lieutenant Vasconcelos arrived at that of the Sacuriu-Iná on the 6th of June, a little more than a hundred kilometers from Passo da Linha, and that of the Cravari six days afterwards, at a hundred thirty-nine kilometers below the previous one. The discharge of the first river was, at the time, 59 cubic meters, through a mouth of 49 meters wide. That of the second was 101 cubic meters, with a width of 52 meters. The most important incident of all was the meeting of Lieutenant Vasconcelos with a few groups of Indians of the tribe living in the lower portion of the course of the river Sangi. Only after having passed the mouth of the Sacuriu-Iná had the distinguished officer the opportunity of verifying that the river was inhabited. In order to remain more faithful to the exposition of these interesting episodes, I will here read the topics in which that officer refers to them in his report on this voyage. On the 9th of June, he says, an important note offered itself to us. We saw the first Indian. In a loop of the river, sitting on a dry tree, fallen over towards the bank of the river, there he was, with his arrow in hand, amusing himself fishing. I had not the pleasure of seeing him, not even from afar off, because with the noise which our craft made, and the shouts of Antonio Correa, the prowment of the sighting canoe crying out to call my attention, he was disturbed, and interned himself swiftly into the woods. At the point where he was seen, I landed. I beat about the bush, but saw nothing except a few sticks broken here and there. A little before, we found an old resting place of the Indians whose stakes had been cut with a blunt knife. On the following day, we saw a cluster of woods, also old, 
the trees of which had been cut with a stone axe. This was the first encounter noted by Lieutenant Vasconcelos, even before that of the Cravari. But after passing the mouth of this river, another one took place, which is told by that officer in the following words. The signs of Indians, limited until then almost exclusively to the encounter of the fishermen, were becoming more frequent and more recent, and we noted that all of them used our implements. On the 19th, we bivouacked on the right bank in a large and not very old camp belonging to them, and where they passed some time occupied in hunting and fishing, for behind the bank, and to a great extent, there is a lagoon, most certainly rich in fish and wild ducks, of which we saw various specimens. We were, in fact, not far from the Indians, and the most interesting episode of the whole expedition was about to commence on the following day, in which we camped on the left bank at almost 317 kilometers from Paso da Linha, and 108 from the Juruena, well in front of a largely inhabited village overlooking the river on the top of a small hill. We had effected 12 kilometers of survey, when those in the sighting canoe were aroused by shouts and laughter coming from the Indians, who further down were amusing themselves bathing. We proceeded to the front one, Moore Station, in order to get closer up. We interrupted the work we were doing, and pronouncing some Nyambiquara words, which occurred to us at the time, we went on rowing down, with the intention of selecting a spot suitable for our bivouac, inasmuch as our desire was then entirely to enter into friendly relationship with those poor people. We were very fortunate in our purpose, for as we effected our crossing over to the left bank, we immediately caught sight of a clearing on that bank, in front of the landing stage of the Maloca, and where the Indians were still amusing themselves. Taken unawares, and not suspecting an importune visit, above all coming by water, and still more from upstream, they never even noticed that we were near them. We announced our presence. As soon as they heard our first yell, they naturally saw our canoes and became absolutely silent. If it were not for the smoke which came from the Maloca and rose above the wood, and still more the thatched roof of the hut which could only be seen from afar through the coping of the cluster of trees, no one passing by that spot at that moment would suppose that below each tree a human heart was throbbing. Having terminated the first work of the installation of our camp, I took a canoe manned by three men, and we went to make a small reconnaissance downstream, with the intention, above all, of ascertaining as to whether we could get a better view of the hut. We had descended a little more or less a hundred fifty meters, when we saw on the surface of the waters, hugging the right bank at a small landing stage, a uba, which was flooded. We directed ourselves to this spot, in order to examine more carefully this primitive craft used by the Indians, and which consists of a big piece of the bark of a tree, the extremities being turned up to form the bow and the stern. A few stays of wood across same in its width in order to avoid the bark doubling to and nothing more. It is in fact perfectly identical to those used by the Parnawats. Having made this short examination of the Uba, and as we verified that the Maloca was entirely hidden by the trees, we decided to go upstream, hugging the right bank, 
to see whether we could discover something new. The canoe men had scarcely given their first strokes to their paddles, when, behold, two arrows whistled past our ears, one after the other. Fortunately, they missed their mark and were lost in the river. The fright which we underwent was not small, and I believe that the canoe men never paddled so quickly, so much that they almost swamped the canoe, which, being very heavily laden, did not respond to the haste which we had to gain the opposite bank. Those who had remained in the bivouac, and who had not lost sight of us in that evolution, were observing everything, and became alarmed, but they could see that the arrows had passed over our heads without hitting us. On arriving at the bivouac, we left for our canoes, and recommenced our shouts. The reply obtained, however, was always the same, silence. We then resolved to make a new attempt. This time, we would go to their landing stage, opposite ours, and there we would leave axes and short swords, for, by this means, they would see that our intentions were still pacific, in spite of the attack which we had suffered, and that they had nothing to fear from us. We took these with us, and directed ourselves carefully towards the bank of the river. Still on this occasion we were not well received. On approaching the landing stage, two more arrows were shot at us. Fortunately, like the first ones, they missed their target. We returned hastily to our bivouac, without having succeeded once again to collect the arrows which were immediately carried away by the current. Some moments after this second unsuccessful attempt, the Indians allowed themselves to be finally seen at various points on the bank of the river, richly adorned, with their feather garments of many colors, amongst which predominated those of the Araras. They were armed with bows and handfuls of arrows, and yelled out similarly to the shouts which had used to call them, imitating us perfectly. We immediately directed ourselves to the landing stage. From the canoes we replied to the yells of the Indians, and in a very short space of time we became familiarized and laughed together, mocking each other, imitating the song and chirps of well-known birds. In a short time we were, both parties, in frank conversation, in which one repeated what the other said, and nobody understood the other. As this was going on, one could hear in the Maloca a nasal chant of many voices, accompanied by regular stamping of feet and the sounds of some primitive instrument. Of all this show, and having in view the previous occurrences, we concluded that that was a war chant, notwithstanding the gentle manner with which some, and above all one, which we supposed to be the chief, endeavored to imitate what we said. However, a few moments having passed, he, who appeared to us to be the chief, having beside him a woman, took a few steps in front of the group which encircled him, and arriving as far as the brink of the river, where he remained entirely uncovered, presented us with his son, a boy of from four to five years of age, holding him by his wrists and lifting him up from the ground several times. We were delighted with that jest, interpreting it as being a promise of firm peace, and we immediately took to the canoe. We approximated ourselves little by little. Whilst we were maneuvering and paddling, we showed them the axes and the swords without interrupting the conversation which both parties were holding most enthusiastically. We did not lose their slightest movement, at least that which we could devise, because in spite of everything we did, as soon as we got into the canoes, retired a little behind the trees. 
We were about thirty meters from them when they again aimed and shot off their arrows. As on previous occasions, we maneuvered as quickly as possible, turning our canoes towards our bivouac. On this occasion, the arrows shot off were four in number, of which we were able to get one. In view of these happenings, we found it prudent to attempt nothing further on that day. We therefore agreed to let the following day pass, to see whether we would be more fortunate later on. Now dusk was falling, and we could do nothing better than contemplate them through our field glasses. They are good-looking men and strongly built. I think there is no doubt that they are Nyambiquarish. They use arrows like theirs, with the difference that the directing feathers are disposed in the form of a screw. The men are decked for their defense, and dress with hangings made out of fiber. The women carry nothing more than necklaces and bracelets, which are also used by the men. They paint themselves. One I saw with three lines of white and black dye on his wrists, and another had his face all smeared with white. We counted in all twelve men, perfectly armed and adorned. We only saw one Indian woman, the one that accompanied her husband when he presented us with the boy. She was young, beautiful, a good figure, and tall. The others, the old women and the children, formed a chorus, which we could hear. We also observed a small plantation, close to the Maloca, for we distinguished between the openings and the copings of the trees and above the hill, banana trees and the foliage of the manioc plant. Of the hut we could see nothing, not even the shape. The project of remaining in the bivouac of the village on the 21st for the exclusive purpose of establishing friendly relations with these poor people was only a hope. After the third and last attempt, they became still more amiable. They repeated what we said and laughed heartily. They went to fetch a shirt with which they dressed the boy, and with a sword, the same as ours, opened a small landing place cutting the branches which descended almost to the surface of the water, and there they stretched out a net. We thought that they wished to please us, showing us articles which had belonged to us. However, they were up to a new stratagem, destined to distract us and inspire us with confidence. And the proof of this we had on the morning of the 21st. During the night they crossed over to our side, using for this purpose an uba and completely enveloped us, awaiting for the dawn of the next day in order to open the attack. As usual, at 5 a.m. we commenced work. We directed ourselves to the canoes, and cried out, calling various times, but in vain. We thought that they were still asleep, owing to the cold weather and to the darkness and mist which was falling. Withal, we did not fail to take notice of their silence which caused the suspicion. Far from us was it to be supposed that we were surrounded by them. We returned under cover and made coffee. At this moment, behold, there fell upon us from all sides a regular shower of arrows, accompanied by the loud noise of their voices and the helter-skelter of the Indians closing in upon us rapidly with their sure shots. Attacked in this way, almost unawares, we were not a little upset. My personnel, frightened, ran to take cover where I was, yelling, Indians! Arrows! I immediately got out of cover, 
having previously got hold of my shotgun, which I had with me, ordering them not to run and telling them to fire into the air. I myself fired the first shot, and it was this that saved us. The personnel with fright and the recommendations which I had given not to fire had dropped their arms. With the report of the gun, the Indians got frightened and ran, and more or less calm was then re-established amongst us. It was a pity that the effect of this occurrence did not only remain in the fright which we had passed. Two men were wounded, one slightly, Antonio Correa, struck in the vertebral column below the neck, where the arrow penetrated only three or four millimeters. The other, unfortunately, received a more serious wound. This was Marcelino Borges, who, poor fellow, had no luck during expedition. He was bitten by a snake, he was shipwrecked while still ill, and lastly received this arrow, which struck him in the thigh, piercing it as far as the iliac region. He remained a very short time standing, owing to the pain and abundant hemorrhage. Dr. Serapion did the necessary dressings, which both cases exacted. In view of the attitude of the Indians, and bearing in mind our position, we decided to break down the camp without loss of time, and to proceed on the topographical service. While the necessary dressing was being done, and the canoes were being loaded, we made a small inspection of the surroundings, verifying the position occupied by the assailants on the occasion of the attack. We then saw that they were short of entering the small area of our bivouac, for the line of attack arrived at less than thirty meters from our tents. Some of them, frightened at the shots, dropped their arrows and one of them also his bow. These were collected by us, many others being lost in the river. The plan of attack was well conceived. Above, below, and from one of the sides, they placed themselves frankly resolved to annihilate us. On the other side was the river. In case any one wished to escape by saying, he could not go very far, because above and below there were groups of warriors, as well as on the opposite bank, where it would be madness to procure refuge. The banks were therefore protected. No one could consequently get close to them without risking his life. We remained, therefore, deprived of proceeding with a survey with the telemeter. He had to use, in order to calculate our distances, the speed of our canoes. I sent the ferry raft down with the sick man, and following it, the sighting canoe, whilst I went upstream with mine as far as the point at which we had left service on the previous day, where we recommenced the survey. The Indians gave no further signs of themselves. They let the two canoes pass by. But when our turn came, on facing the mouth of a small igarapé, existing a few meters below the bivouac, they fired a shower of arrows over us. We then saw at this point, and close up to the opening produced by the bar of the Igarapé, the group which had attacked us, also the Uba. In order to calm the crew of the canoe, and above all to avoid that some of them, frightened, should throw themselves into the water, I was obliged to fire two shots into the air. The Indians, with this, did not seem to worry themselves very much. They commenced to mock our exclamations, calling us and laughing heartily at our situation. For safety's sake, we carried out this work midstream by means of the velocity and thus continued for eight kilometers, 
at the end of which we found an island to which we moored. We then met together and reorganized our march to continue from there with the survey by telemeters. Before abandoning the camp of the village, we left, as a token of our farewell, some axes and swords, placed on a small platform. From the narrative of this interesting episode, in which one can see at the same time a striking example of the methods and procedure adopted by the Telegraph Lines Commission in the relations with the indigenous tribes found in the wilds in which it had to operate, and the calm and resolute courage of the officer who directed the action, impressing it with a seal of such high chivalry, it must be inferred that Lieutenant Vasconcelos supposed that the Indians of the lower course of the river Sangi belonged to the Nyambiquara nation. Such a supposition, however, must be rejected, not only from the fact that Lieutenant Vasconcelos himself had not heard from those Indians a single word of the Nyambiquara vocabulary, as also, and principally by the verification that the Indians in question possessed habits and customs which absolutely do not coincide with those of our known dwellers of the zone comprised between the Juruena, the Comemoração de Floriano, and the headwaters of the Roosevelt. Besides the difference noted in the course of the narrative with regard to the manner of placing the directing feathers for the flight of the arrows, there is yet that which results from the use of the net and of the practice of navigation. It is already known that the Nyambiquaras lay themselves down to sleep directly on the ground, without any other care than that of selecting for this purpose places covered with sand, and that for their transports by water, which are limited to simple passing from one bank to the other of the rivers, they use nothing more than some floaters, made out of the Budichi palm, with which they help their swimming. Contrary to this, the dwellers of the river Sangi sleep in hammocks, which they must necessarily make themselves, and furthermore they know how to build ubas and to utilize them. From this last feature we are led to believe that they belong to the ethnographic group of the Tupis, and possess, as it is known, a civilization much more advanced than the Jes. We cannot at present determine the tribe from which these may have separated, neither the epoch in which this may have taken place, but we are certain that with them occurred the same thing as with the Parnawas, who are part of the old Tupi tribe which, in times gone by, interned itself in the wilderness occupied by nations of another origin, and there settled and held itself aloof from the other people belonging to an entirely different civilization to theirs. To many other facts of great geographic importance contained in the report of Lieutenant Vasconcelos on the valley of the river Sangi, I will not refer on this occasion for absolute want of time. I will only mention that, from the collection of the samples of rocks brought from there by this officer, the geologist Dr. Eusebio de Oliveira, who has studied same, concluded that the Arenitic formation of the Plateau dos Parecis rests, before the mouth of the river in question, on crystalline and eruptive rocks. End of section 23